there's kind of like a journalism hierarchy. Like who gets to decide? Well, you're not a real journalist. You know, I get that. And I'm like, well, are you a real journalist? Because yeah, you're white and you're famous and you have this show, but you are not asking X, Y, and Z. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Anushe Hossein. Anushe is a feminist op-ed journalist that has appeared on CNN, PBS, Forbes, Huffington Post, and the iconic Bangladeshi newspaper, The Daily Ittafak. I didn't even name all the places she's been featured, and I'm out of breath. (laughs) Anushe is the granddaughter of one of Bangladesh's founding fathers and the daughter of a famed Bangladeshi feminist. We talk about how Anushe almost stopped pursuing journalism during college, about the influence of her mother, the famed feminist back in Bangladesh, on her own work, and about being an objective journalist versus an opinionated journalist especially in today's highly politicized environment. Anushe is also the host of the podcast Spilling Chai and the author of her upcoming book, The Pain Gap. I asked her about working in different mediums, transitioning from traditional journalism to podcasts and publishing, and about the actual life event that led to her writing that book. Lastly, Anushe is a polyglot married to a Persian. We talk about raising children in a multicultural home and about some of the guilt that we might feel as we struggle on how to pass on language, a love for spice, and other elements of South Asian culture. There's a lot to cover, so let's dive in. Anushe Hossein, welcome to Brown People We Know. Anushe, I'm about to get my pilot's license right now, which I thought was a cool hobby, until I found out about one of yours. Many South Asian Americans grow up speaking two languages, and so they kind of develop a knack for languages, but you speak five. Can you tell me about how you learned so many? Well, I learned so many because as you'll soon see, I talk so much. So I think I just wanted to learn as many languages as possible. No, it happened. It happened by accident. You're right. Most Desi speak. We have to speak, you know, usually our mother tongue and then we speak English. So in Bangladesh, everybody has, you know, speaks Bangla. Then we're learning English in school. And then we watch Hindi because all our entertainment is obviously Indian Hindi cinema and Indian movies and Bollywood. I hate that term, but here we are. (laughs) And then in school, we took Spanish. And... I really, I don't know. I just, even now, it, it gets harder when you're older. Like now I'm 41 and like my husband's Iranian and my kids are learning Farsi and like I understand so much of it, but uh, not the way, not the way that I used to be able to. And I keep explaining to my kids that's so important that now you're able to do that bilingual switch in your head, yeah. you know, which I think a lot of white people can't do or are not learn. Like Americans are terrible with languages. What's going on? People are picking up Spanish <laughs> very reluctantly. I think it's like the second fastest growing language. It's the second unofficial probably language in America. But then I took Italian. I, I took, uh, I went and lived in, in Rome. I, uh, in my 20s, after I graduated from UVA and I worked on the Hill for a year in DC. I don't know how I did this. I, don't, I can't believe my parents let me do this. I wanted to go to Italy for three months and take a literature course before I went in for my master's program. So they gave me like this, you know, three to six months, a couple of months in between my master's. 
I wanted to go to Italy and learn Italian. And my dad was like, no way. How are you going to leave your job in Washington, D.C. and go to Italy where, you know, I, don't, I didn't have any friends. I didn't speak the language. And my mom was like, go. Go now because when you get older and you have children and you're married, you're never going to have this time. And I went to Italy for three months and it turned into like a year. I did become fluent in Italian. <laughs> But it's a big part of my life. I try to go back every year. And I really think in my last life, I must have been Italian. When I was leaving Rome after that year, uh, the immigration officer was like, why did you come to Italy? And why have you been here so long? I'm like, I was learning Italian. And he was like, why do you want to learn Italian? It's not like French. You can't use Italian, you know, anywhere outside of Italy. And I was like, because it's the most beautiful language. <laughs> he was like, ciao. <laughs> I got out of here. Listen, if Cal Penn left the White House to film Harold and Kumar, I think you can take a year off to go live in Italy and learn Italian. Oh my God, it was, it, can I tell you, I'm so, it was, it was incredible. It was incredible. And yeah, I'm very close to my mom and it was just so cool that she, she had the foresight to say that. They see mom in Bangladesh, like in 2002. <laughs> no, I don't think so. So that was amazing. And yeah, I love, I love languages. I love people and I, I love cultures and food. I love, I love all of it. And you know, one thing I really don't understand about people who are like racist and so close-minded is They're really just missing out <laughs> on so much that makes the world and people so rich. So I really love that about, about our culture, too. You know, we're, we're so open to it. Like I went to an international I went to an American school growing up in Taka, but it was an American international school. So it was all like uh, these diplomats. And I went to school, I feel like, with some of the best white people ever. You know, their parents just kind of moved them from country to country every two, three years. And they were so international and diverse. And. There was so much inter interracial like friendships and dating going on in my high school. We really had no idea about how, how good we had it. So even today as a D.C.-based journalist, you're the Washington correspondent for a Bangladeshi newspaper called the Daily Itafak. Do you feel equally comfortable reporting in English and in Bangla? Because I know like I speak Telugu and I can get through a conversation. But when it gets to like philosophical conversations... Or, or bigger things. I don't know the words. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, no. It's so bad and so embarrassing because I grew up in Dhaka. My parents are Bangladeshi and I still live there. But my Bangla reading and writing goes up to like a fifth grade level because we, we went to the American school. But when we came home, we had a Bengali tutor. Like, who wants that? <laughs> so we were all just like run and try to like avoid this tutor. Uh, but we did, you know, we know how to like read and write. But the newspaper I write for is Bangladesh's oldest uh, national newspaper. It played a really big role in the country's independence. And that That Bangla is like Shakespearean Bangla. So I have a translator. <laughs> I, have a tra I write in English. A lot of times it's pieces that were just published and they'll take, you know, my USA Today piece or my CNN piece and they'll translate it. But yeah, <laughs> I'm not writing. <laughs> but, but you know what? I've had people kind of been like, hey, there's no way you're writing this. I'm like, I never said I wrote the Bengali. <laughs> I don't even want people to pretend because, I mean, it's not vernacular Bengali. It's like Shakespearean Bangla. It's such an old, proper, the formal Bengali. And no one even talks like that, like my parents do. <laughs> But yeah, if I can read the headline, that for me is a big accomplishment. And usually I can. Another hobby that you picked up was belly dancing, which you did in college, which I thought was fun because that's when most people are going to the Bangra team. <laughs> so what sparked your interest in that? I, I came as an international student from Bangladesh to UVA in the 90s, okay, 1998. And immediately I realized it was all clicks. 
right? So, you know, you had the Arab student organization, you had the Turks, you had all the, the Greek scene, which is huge at UVA, even now, especially back then. And I was like, I don't want to party with, like, beer on the floor. And it's so gross. And then I saw all the brown people lumped in with the Indians. Okay, so it was all, like, Bhanga and all the Bengalis are doing that. And I'm like, but I'm not Indian. And then I was like, man, the inter- there was, like, a larger kind of mixed pack called the international students with more Middle Easterners, more Europeans. And I was like, I like that crowd. But it also just kind of happened. I took, I took Arabic. I t- oh, this is one language I was not able to learn. Oh, my goodness. I took Arabic, which, again, like Bangla, you know, they have Fasha and they have Amiya. So there's a conversational and then the Quranic Arabic. And you have to learn the Quranic Arabic because it, the dialect obviously varies. So, man, that didn't work out. But I made, made some of my best friends there. And, yes, I did join the Arab Student Organization. And I did belly dance. And I was very, very good at it. But now I am a mom of two. And I just have a belly. <laughs> But I love, I love Middle Eastern music. I, it, I mean, it's some of the best, best music ever. Bhangra too. I like Bhangra too, but there's a lot of hierarchy with the Indians, man. You know it. My, my other childhood friends who were at GW, up in D.C. or Georgetown, they were really hardcore. Like my Bengali guy friends all came to the U.S. A really good friend of mine also went to University of Michigan. So I know like, what's it called? Sada or Saja? Your South Asian student network is like huge and like, Dr. Sanjay Gupta's like went there, like so many famous Indian alums. But they all got into the Indian crowd at their respective colleges. It was so funny. I was the only one that didn't. So they were always doing like Bhangra Fest <laughs> and all that stuff. So Anusha, before I dive into your career as a journalist, I wanted to start with your mother, who I imagine was a huge inspiration to you. Can you tell us about some of the work that she did in Bangladesh? Yes. Well, my mom was a huge influence in my life. I was the youngest of four. So everybody was like always telling me to be quiet and always ignoring me. I was really loud. I had like three gorgeous sisters and I like to like be in the sun and swim. So I was really dark and you know, that's so scandalous. But my mom, she just took me with her everywhere. And whatever I wanted to do, if I, I wanted to be like a supermodel at one point, then I wanted to go to Bollywood, then I wanted to go to Hollywood, then I wanted to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> but she always supported. She was always like, that's the best idea ever. Uh, but my mom is, she's a really big women's rights activist in Bangladesh, and she's a former member of parliament. She actually started the first Bengali feminist magazine, Anunna. Oh, and then she's like a huge businesswoman. She's like the CEO of everything my father owns because my dad wanted to, you know, be full-time in, into politics. So she's just a really, really badass woman. And I write about her in my, in my forthcoming book, uh, actually, in the first chapter, as, as the first feminist I ever knew. So, so when I was in high school, middle school, she would drag me to these women's rights symposiums, you know, when I was like a kid. And I wanted to obviously hang out with my friends after school and talk about boys. And I was like, this is hell. Like, my, my mom is trying to ruin my life. <laughs> and then when I was 16, she started noticing that I was like, that I had a talent and an interest in writing, you know, she, she got me this internship at this newspaper in Bangladesh, which had a weekend magazine mm. uh, that started publishing my work. But I had to go like two or three times a week after school. So again, I'm like, my life is being ruined by this woman. But, she, you know, because of her, I started getting published so young before I even graduated. And I, I can't imagine living or surviving in any lifetime, I think, without my mom. I think even in the next lifetime, we'll be friends or I just can't imagine. 
I, I couldn't exist. My spirit couldn't exist. She's just one of my favorite people. She's awesome. Anybody who meets with them, she's really cool. And she will give it to you straight. No BS from my mom. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm picturing you getting dragged around to these symposiums as a kid and hearing about your mom giving a speech to parliament. I know she gave like a big speech about issues happening with sex workers. So I'm wondering, like at that time as a kid, did you understand the work she was doing, the gravity of the issues that she was dealing with? Uh, yes, yes and no, because I, I, we were very aware of the status of women and girls, obviously. And Bangladesh now has changed so much. But growing up in the 80s, I mean, the poverty was really everywhere. And we hadn't really become that development star that we are now, you know, slashing our maternal mortality rates by 40%, much better than even America's doing. You know, we're, we're so close to achieving the key sustainable UN development goals. We have so many, we've, you know, outpaced even India and Pakistan in so many things. Public toiletry, toilets, education, girls' education, all these things. So I was aware, but I was also in a really privileged bubble. Like, really privileged, you know. Uh, my grandfather was one of the founding fathers of, of Bangladesh. And my dad was in politics, and my mom got into politics. And so it was a privileged, very public bubble. So I didn't, but then I very quickly did. Especially when she, that issue of the sex workers that she took to parliament, you know, it was really a large issue of violence against women where the police were raiding, raping, beating, mutilating these prostitutes, brought in, trafficked into the city because they're running, they're operating out of the slums. But in Bangladesh, prostitution is legal if you have a permit. But obviously, most of these um, brothels don't. Anyhow, they were doing a lot of this stuff. So when she brought that issue to parliament, I, I, you know, I was there for that speech. I realized very quickly that in a country where women were overwhelmingly powerless, you know, my mom was very powerful. But then when my childhood nanny got very sick and, and was dying, I, you know, I quickly realized, you know, my mom wasn't that powerful. <laughs> so yes, yes and no, yes and no. But um, I, I know that it was always something very bold to do. So then... You're kind of seeing this and you talked about your mom putting you in this internship. Can you talk about that transition into becoming a journalist? Was that what drove you to the United States or did you happen to come here and then find your way into journalism as a career? It's it's so funny because I yeah, I mean, I knew I was going to go to college in America because my dad went to Georgetown and we're, we're four girls. Oh, that was another thing about my dad. You know, most people are like, let's get our daughters married. You know, they're. They just had their periods, arranged marriages for everyone. But my dad was like, everyone's going to college in the States. <laughs> and everyone has to go to Georgetown. Uh, but anyhow, that year uh, that my older sister went to college, a UVA beat out Georgetown. So my other sister went to Georgetown, then my older sister went to UVA. And then I kind of followed her there. But yeah, very much. Like when I was about to graduate from high school, like I got voted most likely to be a journalist. I was just like, that's what I'm going to study in America. Boom, boom, boom. But I ended up doing English literature and accidentally doing a minor in Asian history. But when I was there, as you know, when you're in college and a really competitive school like UVA, I mean, you know, it's a big party school, like University of Michigan too, but you have a 2.8 or lower GPA, they're going to kick you out so fast. You're going to be on academic probation. So people partied hard and worked hard. But also, as you know, when, you, when you're in your college, it's so hard to pursue that kind of writing unless you join like the college newspaper. I got so consumed with my work, 
like my essays and the writing uh, assignments I had for my classes. I didn't have time and I completely stopped writing like personally or professionally. It was all academic. And by the time I graduated from college, there was a point where I was like, maybe I never was a writer. Maybe that was just like this phase. And I almost stopped writing for like seven and a half, like eight years. And there was, I mean, even when I was in Italy, I was like, hey, I just can't write anymore. It's so weird. But it was like a really long, it was like a decade long writer's block kind of. I think I went to college and I just became so, it was like focused grades. And even though my goals and my ambitions were still growing, I think college was really a time of when I became really huge feminist. (laughs) That's what was happening in college. I didn't have time to write about it, but that's what was happening. It sounds like you were laying the foundation for a lot of the issues that you analyze today. But it's interesting to me because I think I've heard many other South Asians, almost every South Asian I know at some point has said, like, I want to be a journalist. Really? (laughs) Oh, my God. I had on Bobby Mukamala, who was he's an ENT physician. He's a board member for the American Medical Association now, like collects cars. He does all this stuff. But he was like, when I was younger, I wanted to be a journalist. But so few of us actually end up going down that path. And I think a lot of that has to do with stability or just it doesn't seem like a viable career. Right. And now you're so regularly featured in CNN and the Huffington Post and all of this. But I'm wondering, did you have a moment where you're like, okay, I'm a journalist now or in that beginning stage before you're getting featured in those publications? I'm assuming that it was kind of a rocky start. It, it No, it was so crazy. I didn't know so many people wanted to be a journalist. Really? I feel yeah. like everybody wants to be like a doctor or engineer. Maybe they want to be a writer. Well, I think that journalism is like, there's a romanticism about it because the picture of a journalist is you're traveling and you're reporting on these big picture issues. Really? What, if, when you really make it, it is not like that for the vast uh, many years. No, I, I, it's so funny. I mean, I'm 41 now and I just feel like I'm such an old lady because I have these moments where I'm like, wow, you really don't know when things are happening or when life is like pushing you in one way because it was so hard. It was so hard. And as a brown, a woman in America, like the media situation is very white, even now. Okay. And yeah, things are getting better. But no, I started publishing myself. The first person to publish me was myself. And I got some very good advice. What was it? 2008, 2009 from a very good friend. Cause I was so sick and tired. You know, I graduated from college. I'm working and I'm just like, God, the images of brown women South Asian women, Middle Eastern women, Muslim women in America are so effing offensive. Like, it's, I couldn't handle it. It was enraging. We're, like, either trapped at home behind our veils or we need, you know, we need to be saved or we're charity basket cases. And I was like, I know I grew up really privileged, but I grew up with some badass Bangladeshi women, okay? And even if they were housewives, they were, like, the CEOs, so... In a very patriarchal society, I actually grew up in a kind of matriarchal family because we were so close to my mom's side of the family and she had like nine sisters and my kalas are all incredible. And even if it seemed like they hadn't accomplished anything in their life, like I was just talking to one of my aunts the other day and I didn't know that growing up she was in such a violently abusive marriage. But, you know, she, she kind of stuck it out until her kids were like old enough and then she like left and went to America. But I was like, hot damn, Dina Kala, you just like restarted your life here with like nothing with like no money and three teenage children so no I I never I just I I I was just really offended and tired of it and um 
I knew how I wanted to write about women's stories and what kind of stories I wanted to read. And I just remember it was when everybody was kind of starting blogging and starting their own websites. Because this is another thing maybe like younger people don't know, but before the internet, <laughs> you couldn't publish yourself. So I had a very good friend of mine who told me not to wait for someone to give me a platform and to make my own platform. And one day in the middle of a meeting at my work, I just got up and left and went to my computer and went to wordpress.com and started Anusha's Point. And I just started writing the kind of feminist articles I wanted to read about women of color or stories on feminist issues from the perspective of women of color. And in the beginning, I think for a good, like, I won't say year, because it did start happening fast, but there was a period where it was only just like my mom and my husband reading my stuff. <laughs> but I will say something. If your writing is good, if your work is good, you will get noticed because it's, it's, it's easier now too, right? Because I mean, a lot of people say that I'm a self-promoter, but I'm like, it's the age of self-promotion. You can't write something now. You want to keep it a secret or do you want to tweet it out? <laughs> you know? So I, I just started writing like that. And then, you know, my husband, don't ever tell him I, I told you this, but he has really good ideas and he's usually right. And he told me to like start reaching out to editors of, of publications I would want to read to. And I was like, oh, they're never going to respond. This was 2009, and I sent an email, and I pitched a, a story to Huffington Post, and they took it. And, you know, this was in 2008, 2009. It was like November 2009. So Huffington Post, do you remember this? They were a huge deal. It was like the internet newspaper. So even though they didn't pay, that was another thing. I started out, and I think I was writing for at least a year or two with no pay because there was a real idea in, in the beginning that online media and writing you do online is free. So it took a really long time. Now I'm now I'm very good at it, uh, and I don't think anybody expects anything for free anymore. But you know, putting your like rate up front, talking, negotiating uh, up front. But definitely in the beginning, there was a huge class action lawsuit that took Huffington Post to, and Arianna Huffington to court over how she built her empire on the back of unpaid bloggers. <laughs> I was one of them, but I didn't take her to court. I did get. I think I saw like two dollars of that money because there was there was like a million people, right? And everyone gets like a dollar, but whatever. But no, it was just it. It was just happening. I, I never. I went from like I know I'm going to be a journalist to, to here I am. It's interesting to me that you started in blogging because I think historically, journalists have been pushed to really stay on the facts and not reflect on the material or offer their opinions. But when I look at your style, as you speak on CNN and such, you've often like used your own life experience. So one example that that I recall is you've used yourself as an example as a Muslim woman to combat the image and media of Muslim women being oppressed. And so do you think today as a journalist and as a correspondent on all these different platforms, have you succeeded because of the fact that you're kind of breaking that norm in journalism or have you succeeded in spite of that? That's a great question. I think things are really changing. And I am not a neutral objective journalist. And I think right now in the time that we're in, and especially in everything that's happening in America, as a person of color, and I talk about that, I've had a lot of I've had a lot of, you know, prominent black journalists come on my podcast and talk about this. Because, of course, with everything that has happened with race over the past year or two with the Trump administration, I don't think you can be a person of color and be objective when the president of the United States is endorsed by the KKK. <laughs> and people are like, he's not racist. That's so offensive. And, you know, when there's a Muslim ban and you're a, and you're a Muslim. 
So I think a lot of people, when they attack me, they're like, you're not a journalist. I'm like, no, I'm not. And I'm definitely an opinion journalist. And I think you can only be a white man and be like, I'm a journalist, just reporting the vets, have nothing to say. <laughs> Doesn't affect me personally. <laughs> this policy isn't, you know, starving my mom in Guatemala or like, you know, those, those issues never, never affect white people the way so many issues, especially now, affect brown people. And you know, brown people are starting to speak up. Black and brown people are starting to speak up. I mean, black people are just saying now, police target us and kill us. We have video and still people are like, mm, we don't know. We don't know if we believe you. Do all lives matter? So um, it's very, very difficult. And I, I'm, I'm not somebody like that. And yeah, I'm, I'm the Washington correspondent for the Doenig at the fucking Bangladesh. Uh, but I'm not just reporting today, Nancy Pelosi said this. I'm saying this is happening on Capitol Hill. This is a problem because X. Americans don't understand how policy formulated in Washington, how U.S. foreign policy affects non-American lives around the world. It's unacceptable, and it would blow their minds. It would blow their minds. I mean, I even write about this in my book. There's an there's a American policy called the Mexico City policy, which is known as the global gag rule. But if you're an overseas NGO that gets any U.S. funding, you cannot talk about abortion, even if it's legal in your own country. You could lose like your U.S. technical assistance, financial assistance, that's your computers, your sonogram machines. If somebody comes in with a, even a life-threatening situation, and I'm a doctor, and I know, you know, maybe we should terminate this pregnancy. I can't tell you that because I'm going to lose my U.S. funding. Like, what the F? Americans have no idea how our domestic abortion politics is all over the international arena. Yeah, so it's not possible to be... A, a, a woman of color and a feminist <laughs> and not have an opinion. I mean, that's my middle name. So yeah, I'm an op-ed journalist. And I think a lot of people now are starting to call themselves opinion journalists. And I think there was a good couple of years, even now, there's kind of like a journalism hierarchy. Like who gets to decide? Well, you're not a real journalist. You know, I get that. And I'm like, well, are you a real journalist? Because yeah, you're white and you're famous and you have this show, but you are not asking X, Y, and Z. Or... Like when the January 6th insurrection happened at the Capitol, seeing how many American journalists approached white violence as opposed to black violence. I mean, if we all know, you know too, if those rioters on January 6th were white, were black or brown, we, we would have been dead. <laughs> These people are being like escorted out. The police are like high-fiving them. Like, are you serious? So even stuff like that. I mean, somebody called it. Somebody called it, there's a real a political market for what Trump is doing. I'm like, it's white supremacy. <laughs> and if at this point you're still having trouble talking, you know, calling out racism, which a lot of white people do, I don't understand what kind of journalist you are if you can't say X, Y, and Z is racist in a country like America built on white supremacy. Totally agree. It was, that whole incident was disturbing to watch because I think many of us know the entire time we were watching it and just thinking like this would have played out so differently if it was a different group of people. Blacks, Muslims, even just regular Indians anyone. who are Hindus, anyone. Right. <laughs> anyone. Yeah, Asians? The doctors. All the doctors. <laughs> the doctors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Oh, so bad. Yeah. And it was traumatic, you know, because I mean, I live in D.C. It happened just like and I, 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 I mean, it's crazy. I worked on the Hill. You know people on the Hill. D.C. is very, very small. A lot of people say they live in D.C., but they actually live in, like, Maryland or Virginia. But I also think that brown people viewed that very differently than white people did. All people of color were being scared. I was like, they're going to come start, I don't know, dragging us out of our homes. It's like white mob lynching violence. 
it was very interesting to see how okay white people, how okay Americans are with white violence. It's really traumatic. So I want to pivot a bit to your latest work, which is a book called The Pain Gap. And I think this is a good time to bring that in because that book was really based on almost like a near-death experience, or maybe it was a near-death experience that came from your own life. So can you talk about that moment and what this book is about? This book is my biggest dream. And it was so hard to get published in America. Women of color, brown girls, brown people don't get these contracts. I actually, a couple of years ago, I love to tell this story because it's so crazy what you put out into the universe. And I really, of course, I'm Desi, so I believe in all of it. Bring on the astrology and all the spirituality, but not from the white girls on Instagram, <laughs> from like my mother or my grandmother back home. But I was doing a TV hit up in MSNBC, I think like two or three years ago. And it was really early in the morning. It was like an 8 a.m. hit on a Saturday. So I was there at like 5 a.m. and getting into studio and everything. And I just kind of turned around. I was on Avenue of Great Americas. And I saw Simon and Schuster. I was right outside their office. And I just had a moment where I was like, you know what? They never give those contracts to people like us. And I was kind of just mad. Like, I just had that thought. And I just kind of looked at them. <laughs> just the building. And then and last year, I got a contract with Simon & Schuster. It's so crazy. So crazy because it's just my biggest dream. It's my biggest dream. And I was actually telling my husband that uh, the day I just got the advanced copies. And uh, last week, it was actually the happiest day of my life. And I was telling him it might have been more meaningful than even when I gave birth to our kids. because. I'm, I was so present <laughs> and I wasn't like dead uh, from it. But the book is, it starts with my own experience, but it's really about how America gave Bangladesh the concept of, of public health and did so much to bring women's health, you know, reduce maternal mortalities and so much. And today America has the highest maternal mortality rate. More women die giving birth in America than any other rich country. It's not because we don't have the resources or the medical expertise. Uh, it's because giving birth in America is, is a business. And um, you know, with the highest C-section rate. So there's, there's a lot of complication and it's important. I'm gonna try not to go off on the topic that I wrote a book on because it's my favorite thing to talk about. But the reason I focus on maternal mortality rates and why people focus on maternal mortality rates is because it doesn't just tell us how many women are dying in childbirth. That number is an indicator for how well your healthcare system is running, how, how much you invest in women's health, women's overall position in society. Because if in the year 2021, you're just letting hundreds of thousands of women die in childbirth in your society, women have no health and rights. And guess what country doesn't? America. And I mean, what happened to me now that I've written this book and interviewed hundreds and hundreds of women, what happened to me happens all the time. Giving birth in America is really dangerous. And I was giving birth with amazing insurance, one of the best hospitals in the country. And it, I mean, everything I read about my book, but I didn't realize while it was happening to me that it was such a racist experience, really. I was just like a brown woman repeatedly saying, I really wanted to have like a natural birth. No one was listening to me. They had like put in my epidural, but I was in a lot of pain. I kept telling them that it was like not working and they didn't believe me. They said that I was above the legal limit. I said something is wrong. Then they bring in their anesthesiologist finally, who says that the needle was not inserted properly. So the whole time they thought that I was on epidural and in pain reliever, I'm like, 
having this traumatic experience where I'm in so much pain, the baby's not coming out, and then I just got this like 104 fever. And I was just like shaking, and then they had to do this emergency C-section. And then when I got to the operating table, and this was like a traumatic part of the story that I usually don't tell, but I wrote about it in the book. And you know, you never get your own doctor when you go into labor. So the doctor that I was working with like for the last 10 months wasn't even there doctor who was there he wanted me to walk over myself from the stretcher to the operating table he didn't believe that I was in that much pain I had been in labor for like 33 hours I was I had pushed for two that's another thing people think that you're just like ah and the baby comes out no you're like in labor and sometimes it can like last like easily over a day sometimes people are in labor for like two three days and hospitals really don't like that they want to like you know for a natural birth hospitals make like four or five thousand dollars but a C-section costs $50,000. But that is a major surgery. And, you know, no one had told me that. No one had told me that. Everyone's always like C-section. So easy. It's so much better. But they're ripping your stomach out, taking this baby out. And anyway, the whole thing was really traumatic. But while everything was happening and people were deciding, like, should we do the C-section? Even when I felt like I was dying, because I was shaking, shivering. Can you imagine? Okay, freezing. I have this fever. They can't give you anything at that point. Like the cure for that fever is actually delivery. Uh, I have a baby stuck in between my legs. And um, I just kept telling myself that I'm not going to die giving birth in America. I'm not going to die in childbirth. In Washington, it's not possible. But I really was. And then when my baby was born, I didn't see my baby for like three, five hours. You know, They had to take the baby away from me, make sure my fever was down. But nobody was explaining any of this stuff. But I think about that doctor because there's a whole thing in my book about women's pain. And there's a reason it's called the pain gap. Like women, women are not believed about our bodies, our pain, if we're raped, if we're harassed. And if you're a woman of color, a black or a brown woman, no, nobody gives a shit. <laughs> and a lot of people actually, there's a racist belief that apparently black skin is thicker, so they don't feel pain as much. And this is widely held belief amongst American doctors. There was even a study came out that about like 70% of medical staff in America actually still believe these really outdated racist theories. So I write about that in the book and I'm like, that man, I mean, I should have taken him to court. I did have a little bit of energy afterwards. Like I did call the hospital. He did get, you know, he was like removed from board. He was reprimanded and they like re reimbursed me my anesthesia costs. But I, I should have taken him to court. And I think if I, ha you know, if I wasn't a new mom, I had no energy. I didn't have the physical or the emotional energy. But I really, I think about him all the time. It was really therapeutic writing about him in the book because I didn't realize what a racist experience, what a racist and sexist experience I had. And I thought that childbirth was going to be so... Obviously empowering. I mean, I'm like this huge feminist, but as I write in the book, but instead a Bangladeshi girl almost died giving birth in America. <sighs> Something that I kind of struggle with as I look at these types of issues, whether it's homelessness, the justice system, healthcare issues, is that a lot of this knowledge is already out there, either anecdotally or the research has already been put out there. And yet nothing really seems to happen. Like we know how to solve half of these issues. And so what is your call to action in this book? Or, or how, how are you hoping that people actually move and change after this comes out? Because it seems like often the dissemination of information is not enough. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really interesting that you asked that because the book is really calling for like a cultural shift. And a really big thing that I realized that was happening is that all women have stories. All women have a story about something so fucked up that happened to them. 
in the doctor's office. I mean, Andrew Yang came out with, Andrew Yang's wife came out with her story, Evelyn Yang, two years ago, where she was raped while seven months pregnant by her OBGYN. And she is a really privileged woman. And she's a Yale-educated lawyer. And then when she started talking, all these other women came out. And, you know, that was a huge class action loss that they all took him. Turns out this doctor was raping and harassing his patients uh, for years, being protected by Columbia University Med School. Anyhow, the book really calls for a shift to action. And what I found during my research is that all women have a sexist story and all women of color have a sexist and racist story. And most women don't tell their stories. So not only in my book am I calling for women to come forward and tell their stories, because the the issue is not like cancer or AIDS. It is solvable. It is solvable. Women aren't speaking up. We're we're scared about our doctors. We've been always told that you don't question your doctor. I mean, I can't believe I'm writing a book like this because I'm brown. Like, we have been taught to just worship. The, the, The doctor's word is like the word of God. But I also say that we have, women have a hysteria complex. Women are called hysterical, right? We can't speak up in the doctor's office like that. We can't, in the middle of my, in, of all my trauma, I was trying to be so polite to everybody because I didn't want to be written off as like this hysterical, crazy woman. And then I delve really into the history of hysteria and how women's health, like, we don't even know, we don't even test on women. Largely, the NIH, even to this day, tests on male men and male mice too. So I also go into the history of the NIH and then I talk about why it matters what's happening in women's health in America and how it impacts everybody. Uh, you know, I was just back in Bangladesh in March and I, I went to my father's constituency at his village and was speaking with these rural women leaders. And this one woman was like, oh, so great about your book in America. And like, congrats. But like, how does it do anything for like Bangladeshi women? And I was like, actually, it does a lot. Because if women in America are screwed, we're all screwed. And if they are dying, you know, giving birth in, in childbirth in America, and it's not only about childbirth. I mean, we bring up the three big issues, women's health issues. Depression is number one, then it's COVID itself, and then it's domestic violence. We saw how women were excluded for the longest time from the COVID vaccine trials, even though the entire pandemic has been born on the back of moms in America, women, laborers, immigrants, women of color. So it's, it's, it's calling for, it's actually calling for women to raise their voices, raise their voices, speak up, tell our stories. And I really hope that it will start a, a kind of grassroots movement because that's what, that's what women really need to do. Once we start sharing our stories and talking, everything changes. Everything changes. For so many of us that are in the diaspora, what we're doing and what our parents are doing are completely different, right? Like if I were to tell my parents I'm a consultant or a podcaster, they would on a surface level understand what that means, but they wouldn't really know like what I do on a day to day. You and your mom have both been kind of involved in this feminism movement, her in Bangladesh, you more in the U.S. How would you compare the work that the two of you are doing? Would you say it's similar or different? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, Both. Very similar. My mom usually, I mean, it's been so different in like the last year with the pandemic, but usually when I'm back home, my mom like makes me give these like talks at her magazine or on this stuff. And, you know, there's so many things, and I write about this in in the book, that connect all of us, connect women. Like we have... The good and the bad connect us. There is universal connections because just by being women, being able to give birth to children, lose children, our period pains, dealing with everyday sexism, there's a lot of stuff that people understand. But I I think, I used to think that my mom had it harder because there's nothing better than being born with a penis in South Asia. 
It's scandalous to say, but I, I mean, coming back as a, as a man in my next life, as a Desi man in, in Bangladesh or India, that'd be great. I mean, you don't have to do anything. The fact that you have a penis from birth, you will be worshipped, right? I mean, I just found out that Iranian moms call their sons Dudu Talal, which is, which is golden penis. I'm like, this explains so much. So I, yeah, I used to think she had it harder, but I think the Trump presidency showed me how toxic masculinity is toxic globally. I feel like it's so much more organized in America because there can always be some kind of action, which is legal, uh, which is really cool. And that really matters, like legislation, organizing around legislation, lobbying, grassroots around legislation, call to action, call your senators. There's a bill going on the floor. We can do X, Y, and Z. That's very unique to America, I, I, I would say. I know that as a foreigner, you can't try to lobby the Bangladeshi parliament <laughs> versus in America. Before the insurrection, you could just walk into the Capitol, go and see your, your senators or your congressmen. But then sometimes I feel like you feel like you're getting more ahead here, but you're not. So I, I, the, the struggle for women's rights is global. I don't think any one country has it. I used to think that the Nordic countries, they're so great with their maternal health policies, you know, they are really great about their governments and feminist presidents and prime ministers and such. But then, you know, they have huge issues like Sweden with domestic violence off the charts. So no, no women are not, we, we, ha- we don't have it really anywhere quite yet. I'm very hopeful for my 10-year-old and my four-year-olds for, for their generation because I'm already seeing how much bolder they are than even me. <laughs> so, yeah. You started your career kind of with the written word, right? You talked about blogging and a lot of your journalism thus far has been through the TV and through publications. So what was it like kind of shifting into a new medium, writing the book? And now I know you also have this podcast, Spilling Chai. So do you have a favorite medium amongst all the things that you're working in? Well, writing is like always, you know, it's either from my heart or like from my head. You know, when I, when I got to say something, then the, the writing is very easy. But I feel like... I love my podcast. It is such a passion project. It was supposed to be with like this other company and my co-host who was like my best friend from UVA, who was like an NPR producer. And then the pandemic happened right when we were about to launch and the company like vanished. They closed shop and they don't even exist anymore, I don't think. And uh, my friend, his partner, got moved. They worked for the State Department, got posted to Dubai. And my, I lost my co-host. And I was just like, no, I'm going to do this podcast. And then I was like, I really want to do this podcast. And then I was like, I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> and I did. And now it's just, I, I can't tell you how great people have been. I mean, 99% of the time, touch wood. I don't want any nuzzer, uh, any evil eye. But uh Anybody I approach, they're like, yeah. I'm like, really? Like, I got Steve Schmidt before all the scandal exploded with the Lincoln Project. I was like, really? You want to be on Spilling Chai? I had Manu Raju last week. So I I am so grateful. And it's as you can tell, like, I love to talk. And I love people. So it's such a passion project of mine. And even though we only have 318 followers on Twitter... I have a great social media manager who, who you've spoken with, Annie, and she's really growing out our Instagram. And uh, I love it. I love it so much. So I think my podcast, even though, oh, God, I just looked at I just looked at the advanced copies of my book on my shelf. And I'm like, no, my book, too. My book is my it's my lifelong dream. But the podcast gives me joy. Like we went back to every two weeks just because I do everything for it. I book the guests. I write the script. I record. And then I send that 
to my producer. And yeah, I have Annie on social media, but I mean, I write the questions, I write the script, I do the recording, I interview the guests, I find the guests. I'm my own booker, I'm my own, I'm my own, I'm my own everything. Um, but it gives me so much joy when it's up and it's out, or people tweet it, or they say something like, I'm so honored to be on your podcast. Um, you know, as the hostess filling chai, I just, it, it gives me so much joy. It really is a, a, a passion. I hate saying passion project, but it really, it actually is a passion project. I, I can relate. <laughs> Podcasts are definitely a labor of love. I think all of us start our podcast not knowing how much work goes into it. And then you start finding out. But for whatever reason, once you start, I, I think it's it really is the conversations and the people you get to connect with. It just kind of keeps you going. Yeah. And it's so intimate. I never, ever thought like when my best friend Bilal was like, you should start a podcast. Da, da, da. And, you know, he's been working at NPR for like 20 years now since we graduated. And he's like, you have a great voice. And I'm like, how? I don't even listen to podcasts. It was the exact same thing when some, when they, when they my friend first told me to give myself a platform. And I was like, I don't want to be a blogger. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, it's always so good. And I love that we can do that now, right? Because, I mean, we before I did it on my own, we pitched. I was supposed to do a podcast with Kirsten Powers, who's a really good friend of mine from CNN. And, you know, we pitched to, what, Vox and some other, what's that place called? Westwood or whatever, West, Westwood Media or whatever. Anyhow, and uh, it's just so funny who they used to select. The same way it was with, like, who gets to have a column. And that one brown guy or, like, who gets to be on CNN? Okay, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And then you're that one token for, like, so long. So it's so great that now you can just do it because... We're so much more interesting. People of color, <laughs> we have so much more to say. Come on. Come on, white people. <laughs> you know we have better chai to spill. Uh, but also, again, with spilling chai, it was similar to when I started in Yushay's Point, was I was really tired of this whole, like, chai latte thing, you know, oh, yeah. or, like, this chai tea thing. I, I was just like, you have to stop. It's like non-bread. But they cannot do it with chai. I'm like, you're just saying TT, and you can't make it a latte. What the hell? <laughs> and by the way, it tastes like shit. <laughs> you have to try how we do chow back home. As you know, in, Asian, in all Asian culture, tea is so important. So I'm really pissed off about the Starbucksization of chai. But here we are. I will say I prefer that to people walking up to me and saying namaste. <laughs> That's the one that really pisses me off. Well, you know what is so funny that start, started happening during the pandemic? So we moved and I've been like so grateful to all the delivery people. I've been like tipping really well. But sometimes when they come, when they're dropping off the stuff and I'm on a call or something, I can see them from, from my window. So I always, you know, go like this, like, thank you. <laughs> like, thank you so much. In the rain, you're delivering my food or whatever. And then... <laughs> We just moved to this neighborhood in December and I was talking with a, a new neighbor. And then when he, when he was done talking to me at the end, he went like this and he just kind of did namaste and left. And I was like, that's so weird. Like, why did my 80 year old white guy neighbor just do that to me? So I said it to my husband and my husband's like, cause you're in the window doing this all day. He's like, everybody sees you. I'm like, you do? He's like, yeah, when I'm walking the dog, you're like, <laughs> so I'm like, oh great. People will be coming up to me and doing namaste now, I guess. Well, <laughs> I guess when it's self-inflicted, it's a little different. But I was like, I can't believe I did that because I'm like Bengali. I'm not even in this. It's so funny. But yes, namaste to all. I do feel like in a post-COVID world, isn't this better than handshaking? Oh, for sure. <laughs> Although I will say I'm a rock climber, so I've been very accustomed to fist bumping. So I guess that's, that's a good time to, to pivot and talk about your family a little bit. 
your husband is Persian, which I think is also really interesting because often when, like when my parents have talked to me in their head, there's two options, right? I'm either marrying an Indian or I'm marrying like a white person. They've never really thought about me marrying someone from like another from the Middle East culture. <laughs> yeah, or, or that too. Yeah. Um, so, can you speak about that? Like any cultural similarities and differences? Like, do you guys bond over being immigrants? How did your parents take it? Oh my God, it was quite scandalous. Uh, well, my husband is five years younger than me. We've been together for like thirteen years. We just celebrated our eleventh wedding anniversary, so it's been a while. Um, but he is five years younger than me, and it was it was crazy. My parents were cool. My dad pulled some last-minute drama, but it was very difficult from... I don't I hope none of my Persian family is going to listen to it, but it's true. Uh, it was very difficult from his side of the family, I think. You know, now, of course, everything's different. I love my in-laws, and they're really great. But, yeah, it was very difficult. I think Iranians are very clicky, very, very closed, and it was, it was so terrible. You know, I kept being called, like, Indian. They kept that that was, like this Indian girl and like, why do Indians always do this with their food? And why do Indians put in so much oil? And so one day I was like, I'm not Indian. And it's really offensive to yeah, keep calling yeah. a Bangladeshi Indian. I was like, it's like saying Iranians and Iraqis are the same. And I said that and everyone was like, and then my husband was like, how did you say that? It's so offensive. I'm like, it's so offensive. And then I said, hey, I have a master's degree. I can't deal with this kind of everyday racism. Forget it. Are you crazy? Like, what are your parents talking about? And then, and then it was all like, oh, she's older. She's an Indian feminist. And she's going to be infertile. Like, it was crazy. I mean, anytime I, I joke with my mom, my mother-in-law, she's like, I loved you always from day one. I'm like, oh, you did not. <laughs> but, but my husband is such a great guy. So my, my mom was, you know, right away, everything's great. My dad, everything was fine then he didn't understand why I had to have a wedding in America and I'm like because my husband's American he's a first generation like his parents came here in 79 so he's first generation American but um my dad was like really upset that I had to have a wedding in America I'm like well I do <laughs> I live here he lives here his family's here and then we had a reception in Bangladesh but the day of my wedding after all my dad's like I don't want to come from Dhaka for this wedding why is my daughter getting married in Washington why is my daughter who lives in Washington getting married in Washington uh, I said something because most Iranians are Shia and we're Sunni Muslims. And it really isn't a big deal to us, but it's a huge deal. Because obviously Sunni and Shias have like all this religious toxic history. It's, it always gets, so, it's so tricky. But my husband is very, very, very like religious in, in a spiritual way. So he was like, God is very clear that you're not supposed to divide the religion. And I'm like, well, I think the whole world missed that memo, Shai. <laughs> so we kind of had to make up a Bengali, Persian, American wedding, which, which we did. But there's one big thing is, is the Ak, you know, the Islamic signing part, which is very private for the rest of the world. We kind of do it with like just only, you know, good family. Sorry. With only a close family and like, and the mullah, the priest. Uh, whatever, the morning of the wedding. And for the Iranians, it's something you do at the wedding. And the whole up is like, it's, it's like the centerpiece of the wedding. So I, I made, I think I did a really good job, you know, blending everything. I mean, the food was another really big drama at the wedding because everybody is a rice culture. So Iranians wanted their five rice dishes and they kind of wanted to eliminate the desi rice dishes. And I was, I put my foot down about biryani. I was like, if there's not biryani at my wedding, I'm not going to be there. But anyhow, so when I was explaining to my dad that the sofre ag, for the Iranians, the Persians, they call it sofre ag. It's like the big part of the wedding. My dad's like, what? He's a Shia? I'm not going. 
the morning of my wedding. I was like, Dad, he's Iranian. Of course he's Shia, but he's not really that into it. But the rest of Iran and the world is. It's very important to them. And for Iranians, being a Shia is a part of their identity, you know. Um, so, but anyway, we managed to get there. And then, I mean, it was a great wedding. It's been a great marriage. But yeah, it was, it was very difficult. And now it's so funny because we're married and we, things are so similar. You know, Farsi was the official language of the Mughal courts for 500 years. So there's so many Farsi words in Bangla, in Hindi. And of course, like culturally, now that we're raising our children, I mean, I think anybody that is non-white American has the same. We're like, please take your shoes off at the door. <laughs> Respect your elves. But it's, it's funny. It's funny to see how much more similar we are than different. But in the beginning, no, especially I think with my, with my in-laws, they were just like, what the hell? So it sounds like after the marriage, like the next 11 years maybe smoothed out you know, yeah. over the similarities. <laughs> oh, but I have some funny stories. Per- Persian, is a, it's a difficult culture. You know, my aunt told me something really funny because I was like, God, most people have inferiority complexes, right? Persians have like a superiority complex. They really do. They're like, no, we're the best. I'm like, really? But my aunt told me once, it's so funny. She goes, they are the best. She's like, learn everything you can from them. <laughs> So it's it's a very it's it's very it's a very complicated culture, but it I, I think it's probably one of the most beautiful. Like I am I am uh, I'm so happy for my girls, you know, to have such a rich rich culture on both sides. So Anusha, I was actually curious about this because you mentioned that your grandfather, I think you said, was like one of the founding people in, in Bangladesh and stuff. So. It seems like between that and then uh, your husband's kind of pride in Persian culture, you really want your children to kind of absorb both Bangladeshi and Persian culture while growing up in America. So how do you navigate that without them feeling overwhelmed by having to absorb three different cultures? Yeah, that's a great question. It's it's hard. It's hard parenting. And that's a really good question because it's actually coming up right now. It's happening like every day because, yeah, I speak all these languages and my husband obviously speaks Farsi. But um, we only speak English to each other. So English is the language in our house. And I have a huge complex about it, but I don't know what to do because I speak in Bangla to my parents on the phone and I'm really not speaking Bangla here. And, you know, they hear Farsi all the time. So the Iran, the Persian American community in Washington is huge. My in-laws are here and we have like a really good my husband's side of the family is very close with us and they're here. Like my parents, they live in Bangladesh. So, but it's funny because I'm, I'm just so, I have such a language complex. I'm like, these kids cannot grow up speaking just one language. And I don't, I want them obviously to learn Bangla, but I feel like Farsi is more important. I don't want to overwhelm and confuse them. That they're, They only really hear Bangla when they go back to Bangladesh. It's, I don't know what's going to happen post-pandemic when I can take them back again. I mean, you know, India is still like on fire. And so Bangladesh is just the muted version of that. So I, I got a Farsi tutor because I was like, here, you can get a job at like State Department. You can do so many things when you speak Farsi. And then also you can practice it with your dad's entire side of the family. But I'm also like, she has to take Spanish at school. And then I had my younger one taking Mandarin at one point. And a really old high school friend of mine was like, hey, are you teaching your kids Bangla? I'm like, no, but I got, you know, this Farsi tutor. And she was like, God, Anusha, how can you not teach them Bangla? Like, your grandfather died for it. And I was like, I know, but this is like, everyone's speaking English. And I was like, and I had to choose. And then I was like, you don't know how much this disturbs me because I speak five languages. 
And my high school friend was like, yeah, yeah, we know, and you shake it. You don't have to like over, <laughs> make your kids out to be an overachiever. <laughs> Just teach them one. So I, I, I really, I feel like they're very good though, you know? Like they hear me speak Spanish. She, you know, my, my older one, Spanish is good. We, before pre-pandemic, we used to go to Italy really regularly. So when we were in Italy, you know, they hear me speak Italian. So I hope... I, I, I hope by traveling and just by seeing, I think they're, they're very, they're growing up how I would want them to, but I have a huge issue about the language. It's a huge problem. Yeah, it sounds like Farsi is almost just more practical at this point, but outside of language with food and these other things, are there other ways that they've kind of retained Bangla culture? Yes, food is a really big way. Food, clothes, weddings going to Bangladesh. They've been to Bangladesh. They've never been to Iran. I don't think they're going to be going there until the government changes. But food is a big way. And, and I feel like, I feel like food is a really big way, but I, I mean, it's, it's painful for me to say this out loud, but my children cannot eat spicy food. And it has hurt me in a way. I didn't know the pain could be that deep. I mean, the ketchup is intense for them. I don't know how this happened. And my younger one, I felt like, oh, maybe. And even now she's like, eh, she sees like anything like red or brown. She won't like eat it. And I'm like, you guys have to eat spicy food. <laughs> so it's terrible. It's terrible. So I feel like we're doing really good on the food and the culture part. But if you can't eat spicy food and you don't enjoy a spice, you know, not and not, you know what it's like. It's not spice for the point of the spice. It's for the flavor and the experience. So. It's like salt to me. And it's really like spiciness is an issue in my house as well, because at this point, my spiciness has outpaced my mom as well. And it just it turns into a whole thing, because depending on who's cooking, that determines who can eat what. <laughs> it just like is like a whole. It is. And, but, you know, man, I mean, everyone's always like, oh, you're so American. Can you say you're Bengali? But can I tell you, I am so Bengali when it comes to like food and weather. I'm the most, I'm the most brown person in the world. I'm like, I get spicy and I'm terrified of cold weather. So, <laughs> but but yeah, I, I think about that because I'm like, God, you know, on paper they should, they should speak Bangla, but yeah, it's it's just not practical. But you know, but also, um, there's only so much you can do as a mother. You know, when they get older, they can also take some language courses on their own. I taught myself Italian. <laughs> Nobody in my house speaks Italian in my family. I mean. But, but yeah, it's always a challenge, but it's fun. It's fun. I mean, it's like a masala merch, you know, the, the more, the, the more, the better for us. And it's, it's so cool. It's so cool. So Anusha, where can people find you and, and follow your work and find the pain gap? Well, first of all, it is available for pre-order. So go to just Google the pain gap, or you can even just go to, you can go to my official publisher's page. Uh, it's available for paint, uh, for pre-order, but you can find me anywhere and everywhere. The best place to follow me is Twitter and Instagram at Anusha Hussain. I have my website at anushahussain.com. It's not hard to get in touch with me. But yes, please pre-order my book. And I really want to tell all your female listeners, especially women of color, that now is the time to flip our hysteria complex. We have a complex about being labeled and dismissed and written off as hysterical. But that is actually our power. We should use that because we do have the right to get very hysterical about the state of women's health and women's health care in America. And yeah, you can find me everywhere where the book is coming out October 12th. And I hope leading up to its release, I will really be everywhere. But please pre-order your uh, copy now and also uh, subscribe to listening to Spilling Chai. Amazing. <laughs>
Thank you for coming on. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I'm going to have you on. <laughs> I'd love that. Well, thank you so much for listening. This was great. And thank you for having me. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guest. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.